Welcome to the Babysitter's Fight Club, where the first rule is, you don't talk about Fight Club. Instead, you talk about the Babysitter's Club series of books by Anne M. Martin. I'm Brooke Sukamel. And I'm KK Brady. And this week, we are taking you back to June 1988. And if you aren't following our website, social media, anything where I post the links to the Spotify and YouTube playlist for each episode, you're you're missing out. Absolutely going to want to do it for June 1988 because the 10 songs on the playlist for June 1988 are just chef's kiss. I mean, it was I gave I gave it one for you. Thank you. It was a beautiful month in music. So (laughs) We had number one songs from George Michael and Rick Astley, as you do in the 80s. But we also had Debbie Gibson's very first number one with Foolish Beat. Foolish Beat. It's her song that you don't know by the title. It's like her like soulful driving ballad. I was going to make up a song on the spot. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was going to do. I was going to be like, it's a foolish beat, baby. Did I get it? No, but um, <laughs> but I think you should take that. You should run with that and make your own. It could be like how George Michael had two songs called Freedom. And so you had Freedom with Wham and then you had Freedom 90. You, oh, it could true. be Foolish Beat 21 <laughs> that Foolish you just made. KK. <laughs> KK edition. I like that. <laughs> so those were the number ones. But where you really get the taste of June 88 was with the other songs that didn't hit number one, but were like in the top 20. So KK, we have multiple KK karaoke classics. Uh, yeah. June 1988, including Kiss Me Deadly. Ugh, Lita Ford. Lita Ford. Which. Fuck yeah. You throw down on like nobody's <laughs> business. Literally. <laughs> And then J.J. Fad's Supersonic, which mm-hmm. is the basis of Fergalicious. Yes. Another go-to of yours. And I don't know if you've ever done this in karaoke, but if you haven't, I'm going to request it right now, which would be Samantha Fox's Naughty Girls Need Love, too. <laughs> I've never done it, but I'm open. I mean, I, I'm more drawn to Lita Ford because Lita Ford had more of a sort of fuck you flavor yeah. than like fuck me flavor. That's true. I'm more into the fuck you flavor. Right. But I'm open. Although Naughty Girls Need Love too. if you watch the video. And again, we do a video playlist every month, too, so you can see the video. The video of Naughty Girls Need Love too is so camp. It's like so overtly camp, like her very, very, very gay backup dancers. The sass that they are serving in this video is kind of a fuck you vibe. Immediately, yeah, it's good stuff. Great music, June '88, and then I teased this in the previous episode, but this was an amazing month for movies. So I'm not even going to get into all of them. I'm just going to focus on three of them, which I think are classics of every 80s kid's childhood. You had Big. Solid. Did you see that in the theaters? I probably did. You? It's one of my earliest memories of actually seeing a movie in the theater. Oh, exciting. My earliest memory is throwing up in the Jungle Book. (laughs) I puked. Any particular reason you were just I'm so whatever. disgusted. You know you're you so disgusted by the stereotypes <laughs> that I'm like ah. in the accents. You know, when you're a kid, you're just sick all the time. You just yeah. puke at the drop of a hat when you're, you know, you have a fever all the time. Right. Just whatever childhood flu I had or whatever. Anytime somebody plays the bare necessities, do you get like a gag reflex? <laughs> do I vomit immediately? <laughs> I can't say that I've heard it since. Maybe we should try it live. All right, let's test it out. This will be like, you know, some sort of YouTube influencer <laughs> nonsense. Let's see, like, let's see what sort of like emotional audio <laughs> triggers can make KK puke. This is a middle-aged woman's version of some YouTube <laughs> shtick. It's so stereotypical. What do you think of when you think of a middle-aged female YouTube influencer? You think uh, of somebody... Throwing up to bare necessities. <laughs> Duh. Such a cliche. (laughs) Such a cliche. Oh, man. Yeah, so big. 
It came out this month and I remember seeing it in the theater and I still remember my mom covering my eyes when he touched her boob. I never saw that until I was much older because I remember my mom covering my eyes at that part. So it's so funny because it's so tame. It's tame until you go back and you actually you watch big with a modern view and you're like, wait, this is like a 12 year old child ah, in a man's right. body, but he's still <laughs> a 12 year old child. It problematizes <laughs> things a little bit. Yeah, I can totally see that. I, I haven't seen it in a while, so I'm thinking of it through my younger brain. Right. And I think everybody just remembers like, OK, when I say big, what do you think of? Of course, the iconic piano, the piano scene, scene in F.A.O. Schwartz. Yes. Which to this day is like one of the coolest things I can imagine doing. We also had at the end of June 88, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I remember that well. Which is amazing. And Coming to America. Yes. So those three movies all came out in June 1988. It's kind of the dead zone for TV in June, but for the theater, Phantom of the Opera, your favorite play <laughs> of favorite. all time, your favorite <laughs> theatrical experience, won seven Tonys. Gosh. Big month for Phantom of the Opera. And then I was like, I wonder what was going on. So I was just curious to see what was going on in the Bronx in June 1988. Nothing good. What was KK's day to day <laughs> like at this time? That's not true. There was good. There was a lot of breakdancing. So I found this story and I wonder if you remember. Oh, God. Yes. And the thing that is so great is that this came up on like one of those on this day websites you know you can go and it's like what was the big story of each day and one of the days had the big story globally oh my god was a man arrested delivering ice cream to children <laughs> the ice is cream man story is? finally busted the ice cream man went down close Three giant snapping turtles each weighing over 50 pounds were found in a Bronx sewage treatment facility do you remember oh, wow. this <laughs> I totally do not. That is crazy. I was like, that's the biggest thing that happened on this random day in June of 1988. How big of a story was this? Did everybody in the Bronx come to take a look? It was kind of like the pizza rat of its day. Yeah. Well, so speaking of pizza, I was like, wait a minute. Was this the inspiration for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? (laughs) I got very excited, but I was like, it feels like that's too late. And I was right. The cartoon was already airing at that time. So maybe that's why it was such a big (sighs) deal. That would have made my life if you had connected those dots. It was (laughs) true. Just some lonely, unsuccessful (laughs) television writer. I need inspiration. (laughs) Right. 50 pounds snapping turtles. Found in the Bronx sewers. Boom. Got it. Inspiration received. It's so funny because, you know, the Bronx was a complete disaster in the 80s. So you'd think they would have bigger fish to fry than turtles. When you're starting to get to a point where you've got like almost man sized turtles um, <laughs> in your infrastructure, <laughs> right? In your sewers. <laughs> Maybe. That might say something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that might be a metaphor for. Let's just say societal decline. I was extremely afraid of creatures coming out of the toilet. Dude, same. You you too? Same. And so maybe I had heard it. I don't know. But I was just so I thought there was going to be sharks and snakes coming out of the toilet after me. Sharks is awesome. Um, I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> like do a baby shark. I mean, <laughs> I wasn't crazy, <laughs> but my um, so my dad worked for a major food manufacturer who does not sponsor this podcast, so I won't name them. <laughs> um, but he would get like in the mail every month. It was like one of those, you know, little staple bound sort of brochures. about here's what's going on globally and major corporation, whatever. And I was always so bored. I would read anything that came into the house. <laughs> like if I had You'd a light that like I would probably read a light bill, but I would definitely read that. And I remember once it was like people just had like their like weird news, like it would just have like a random section like that. And somebody said that they found a snake in their toilet. And so oh, like, no, this would have been like 30 plus years ago to this day. I will sometimes still check. Like, is there a snake in my toilet? <laughs> Never found Tired one. Tired of these motherfucking snakes in <laughs> these motherfucking, motherfucking toilets. Toilet. Yeah. Who isn't? I mean, it's reasonable because the consequences are very high. 
right. if if it were to be so. So it's worth a check. That's all I'm saying. Right. Likelihood, very, very low. But if consequences, very high. high. Yes, exactly. So do you know why? Like, was there any reason why you thought that there might be a snake or a shark in your toilet? I think there was a movie and maybe our listeners can help the way that my sister helps me remember everything from the 80s. I think there was a movie about sharks coming out of toilets and <laughs> going into swimming pools. Okay. So and it was not the prequel to Sharknado. It pulls itself out of the toilet. <laughs> it like walks on its little like tail, you know? Now I see it was like a top hat. Hello, <laughs> right. my baby. Hello, my Hello, out my the sliding girl. glass door. Goes through the kitchen, out the sliding glass door. <laughs> And it's just right, and then just does like no. a lovely, a lovely forward dive into the no, pool. No, it was more like it was you know the shark was coming into different pipe systems, uh-huh. so a toilet or a pool. Right. And I just remember being so horrified, and I also couldn't swim in a pool with my eyes closed like ever again. Oh, I just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't. I would only swim with my eyes open underwater. Do you require contacts now? I do now. Okay. So it's kind of an impossibility now. <laughs> right. <laughs> Might have something to do with all that chlorine that got in while you were looking for sharks. But Good point. As you were saying, the consequences are high if you miss it. Very so, high. Exactly. so worth it. Worth it. So uh, that's what was going on in June 1988. And the 14th Babysitter's Club book, Hello, Mallory, was released. (laughs) Hello, Mallory. (laughs) Although I sort of made it sound like the Silence of the Lambs guy. Even better. (laughs) Newman. Even better. better. Hello, Mallory. Poor Mallory. But it's time for some... This book was so good. This was a good one. This was a rich one. I'm so excited. I'm looking forward to this conversation. But before we get into the conversation, time for some back cover copy. And I quote, Mallory Pike has always wanted to be a member of the Babysitter's Club. The babysitters are so much fun to be around and so grown up. Now the club members have invited Mallory to a meeting. This might be her big chance. But the babysitters don't make it easy. First, Claudia makes Mal feel like a baby on her first sitting job. Then they give her a written test with questions nobody could answer. Mallory's beginning to think she doesn't want to be a part of the babysitter's club. Maybe she and her new friend Jesse will start a club of their own. It's time to show those babysitters what a couple of new girls can do. End quote. Boom. So we've met Mallory many times in previous books as a babysitting charge and an assistant, but... This is the first book that she's narrated, so it's the first time that we're able to get into her head. So, KK, how did your perception of Mallory and, frankly, your perception of the world of Stony Brook change with this new protagonist role? Your question gets right to what I thought was so brilliant about this book was the shift in perspective. Mm-hmm. All of the previous books are from the point of view of the members of the Babysitter's Club. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, this is from the point of view of Mallory. And you see the Babysitter's Club through Mallory's eyes. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like the power structure is completely shifted. This is a book about power structures. Exactly. It's just so cool because you never see books. OK, there, there's always a, a main character who's the hero whose shit doesn't stink. And, you know, everything is sympathetic towards their life, their needs, their goals. And then all of a sudden she shifts it to another person and you realize that the main characters have their own fucking issues and they are being shitheads to Mallory. Right. So it's like the author is right away having the kids realize, wow, you know, maybe I'm not always the hero. Yeah. Maybe sometimes I'm the villain. It was utterly brilliant. I don't know. What did you think? I love your line about maybe sometimes I am the villain. It reminds me of, I want to say it's like Hot Fuzz. I don't think it's Hot Fuzz. It's where the character is like, wait, are we the baddies? I've been thinking of (laughs) that a lot in the past few years. And it really came to mind in this book as well. Like I found this book to be super topical for today. Like it's really amazing. And I think to your point about how the change in perspective 
is so helpful to keep any character from being, you know, that Mary Sue character that like the protagonist who is perfect and a perfect protagonist. I'm sorry, those books are boring as hell. Boring as hell. Right. So boring. And so one of the reasons why I think this book series is so good is that you don't have a single protagonist, right? Your protagonist shifts every single book. And so you get to see everyone from a different perspective and then you get to go back into their heads. And so it's like you see the humanity really of every character. But I think what really struck me about this book in a way that I had totally forgotten about is you actually only see the Babysitter's Club members in very limited settings. And you only see them in the context of the power that they wield. Because in other books, even if the focus is not on any given character, that character still exists in the world as a friend, as a classmate, as somebody outside of just colleague. And even to that point, when it's about the Babysitter's Club, they are colleagues. They are all in this club together, whereas Mallory is not in the club. Yeah, literally the phrase itself in the club. Right. Literally, she's outside of it. So you get a protagonist from somebody who is external to the Babysitter's Club for the very first time in this book. And also, you don't really see any of the other characters in other contexts because as Anna Martin, I think, does a really good job framing it. Mallory's in sixth grade. The other girls are in eighth grade. Mallory doesn't even really see them at school like they're in a different wing of the school. You know, they would have different lunch periods like she tries to find them to see them. She can't even find them at school. Yeah, they live completely apart and she really puts them on a pedestal. Exactly. And then once she gets closer in trying to join their club, trying to move from this sort of external, you know, held at arm's length distance to actually get inside that structure, she sees the barriers that they erect to keep her out of that structure. Right. And so up until now, what we've seen and and none of these characters have ever been presented as perfect. Maybe Dawn is more idealized because we just haven't spent as much time with her as we've spent with the other characters just because she comes in later. But like you've seen all of the characters flaws, but then their flaws are always balanced out by their positive attributes. Yeah. And then in this book, Because you're not spending as much time with them, those positive attributes aren't outweighing (laughs) the flaws that we see. Yeah. And you can also, if you think about it, the book up until now, they're always at the bottom of the totem pole. They're either equal power with whoever they're interacting with or they're below. Yep. Right. So Logan is male. So he's got enhanced status. Shannon is their age. So equal status. But she's rich. And she's rich, which is also elevated status. And so for the first time, you see somebody with lower status because of the age. And it could be that, you know, it's just the perspective. They don't seem as shiny and good. But it also could just be that they're not aware of the ways that they're changing when they get a little power. And if you think about the way that they've been so powerless yeah. in their lives with their parents divorcing, with sort of changes happening in this period in history, it totally makes sense that when they get a little power, they might get a little crazy. And I think about the way that you can really read this book as this is how people moved from being parented too little to parenting too much, right? Mm. And this is the age, right? This is the age of folks that then grew up to be kind of helicopter parents. Mm -hmm. And you can really see it in the experience of these kids, right? So like nobody was taking care of home. Nobody was taking (laughs) care of the sibling, or they weren't enough. I mean, they weren't totally abused, but, you know, that might lead the kids to then go on and overparent as a way of, fixing the sort of deficiencies that they had in childhood. And I think you're really seeing it here in the way that they're treating Mallory and their whole like kids are so precious. Like you cannot take a 
single risk with a child. What is wrong with you? Right. Although, like, well, I did see you be like, hey, three-year-old Jamie Newton, go play on the median by yourself. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) No doubt. No doubt. So when you're saying like that, we're seeing this shift from sort of at best benign neglect to oppressive helicopter parenting in this book. Was there any scenes in particular that made you think about that shift? Well, it was mostly the way that they're testing her Mm -hmm. and the way that they are expecting her to have absolute knowledge of children. And you can sort of see that it's coming out of their anxiety that they don't have control over this person. And they're worried that this person isn't going to bring the same quality that they're bringing. Mm -hmm. And so you can see the way that they're responding to that anxiety by over controlling Mm -hmm. and over controlling another person. I don't know. I could just imagine sort of all of these kids being grownups interviewing babysitters, you know, or like au pairs in 15 years, 20 years. And just something really clicked for me in the ways that kids that were brought up in the 80s, a lot of them then went on to have a sort of overcorrection. Mm hmm to the experiences they had to where like they really couldn't let go of control at all. Right. You know, because they're saying those things to Mallory. They're saying kids are just so precious. (laughs) You can't take any chances. I mean, they're just so extreme in the way that they're speaking to her. That's what really made it click for me. Right. How could you possibly babysit for a child for an hour and a half if you can't draw an anatomically (laughs) detailed diagram of the entire digestive system? Correct. And that's really just a reaction to anxiety. As I read it, it's just like, oh, my God, we have to figure out a way to control this. We have to figure out a way to make this a sure thing because everything is unsure in their lives. Right. So whenever they get a little bit of power and they're in a little more of a place of responsibility than they even were before, it's like try to make it as sure a thing as possible. Right. Instead of, of course, addressing the underlying emotions they're having about a world that's constantly shifting under their feet. Yeah, I like your take on it as anxiety. You can definitely tell that you've got the adolescent counseling perspective on it. Right. And it's making me rethink my own interpretation, which was perhaps a little less generous. And I think that a lot of this has to do with it's not just the treatment of Mallory, but it's also what we see the treatment of Jesse, who is as we are told, the first black student in grade six at Stony Brook Middle School. And Stony Brook is so freaking white that Mallory was immediately able to say there are six black kids in our entire school and they are in seven. They don't even like the French in Stony Brook. (laughs) Right. They think the French are fucking spies. Right. So. To me, I was very focused on this emphasis on, you know, status hierarchies Mm. and sort of the desire that a group has to maintain power by oppressing people outside of the group and how they sort of define that. And so I was looking at it from more of a structural standpoint And not so much from like an individual standpoint, which I think your take on it is more empathetic to the individual characters, for sure. And they also are not necessarily mutually exclusive because there's actually a lot of research coming out now that's basically saying social hierarchies are there to quell anxiety. Mm. For those who are higher in the hierarchy, whatever that individual hierarchy might be, because somebody who is at a prestigious level within one hierarchy can be at a very low level or excluded entirely from another hierarchy. So where they find that power, they're going to latch onto it to quell that anxiety. Yes. And then also people manipulating that anxiety, right? 
class anxiety, status anxiety, manipulating that anxiety to have people oppress each other. Right. So that the system is stays invisible. Yeah. So I think your read and my read live together. You know, I, I don't think they cancel each other out at totally. all. Totally. Yeah. No, I wasn't seeing it as a they cancel each other out. It's just again, it just goes to show that this particular book and all, I think all of the Babysitter's Club books, honestly, they're all so rich in the way so that rich. you can interpret them. I mean, sometimes they're, you know, more sort of overt in the message that the author wants you to take away from it. But I think, you know, in this particular book, like it's clear that Anna Martin is trying to make a point about unfair treatment. Definitely. I think that much is clear. And there's a reason why Jesse and her family's treatment as a black family moving into Stony Brook. There's a reason why that is presented at the same time as we see, you know, Mallory attempting to gain entrance into the Babysitter's Club. Like these are parallel stories for sure. But I think that, you know, what you can read into it about, okay. Why is it that way? You know, you can go so many different ways. And that is also reflective of just reality. Like everything in life is complicated. Like there is no black and white. It's so true. Everything is a shade of gray with very few exceptions. And I think we live in a world that is used to like good and evil. And it's like, well, that's not how it is. And so you can see like... Even little things like Mrs. Pike is surprised when she sees Jesse in their kitchen when Mallory brings Jesse yeah. over. Yeah, she's not overtly hostile. No, she's not just surprised. She's surprised. And that, yeah. I think, is also like Anna Martin didn't have to put that in there. She didn't have to say she's surprised, but she does. And so that just goes to reiterate how isolated and excluded must feel at all times, because when she's introduced, you see, you know, students immediately start like shooting rubber bands at her head and the teacher does nothing. She brings up all the time that Jesse is being mistreated and the adults around her aren't doing anything about it. And I think looking at it now, it's really brave to present things that way in 1988 it's very unusual. This is a very unusual direct assessment look at racial tension. Yes. Like if you think about all the shit that was happening in the 80s, there was definitely shows that featured black protagonists. But like nobody was really sitting down in those shows and addressing race. No. It was just like, oh, they're black, they're white. Everybody's in harmony. La, 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 la. Right. We have no problems here. And a portrayal that like racism is... KKK members burning crosses and like overtly using racial slurs. That's what racism is. So you don't want to do that. And I think we all got that message loud and clear. But then what wasn't ever addressed was all of the ways that oppression and marginalization and exclusion come in. In ways that aren't so overt. I mean, we see. Yeah, the systematic elements. Absolutely. We see overt examples of racism in this book. We absolutely do. But then we also see a lot of Jesse just sitting alone at lunch. Nobody will go sit with her, you know? Yeah. And microaggressions. Microaggressions for days, as well as that little turd shooting rubber bands at her head. That fucker. And the bigger turd of the teacher who saw it and did nothing. That is an experience of racism that, like, hopefully people know now. (laughs) I think we're much further along in 2021 than we were in 1988 when this book was written at understanding all of the various, you know, harmful ways that bias and marginalization can seep into society. But 
I don't know that we were really getting that message at the time. And she isn't obviously overtly coming out and saying, look at all of these examples of marginalization and microaggressions. Like we didn't even really have terms for that at the time. Right. But you can see that at least she was conscious of that. And, you know, I'm sure that there are things that this is obviously a book written by a white woman who had plenty of privilege just to be able to be an author (laughs) and have that be your job in and of itself is a privilege. So she was coming from a position of privilege. And certainly we shouldn't take what Anna Martin says about racial relations in the 80s as gospel by any stretch of the imagination. But reading it now It was interesting to see the sort of complex way that racism and marginalization was addressed in this book in a time in which I think we were presented with racism in much more explicit black and white terms. And that presentation of black and whiteness of racism, obviously not just in terms of racial groups, but black and white in terms of clear binaries on what racism Mm -hmm. is and is not how harmful that actually is so that you think, you know, it's kind of like now when we're trying to combat the systemic racism that pervades all levels of our society and particularly talking about policing. And you will hear people say, well, the police have never treated me badly. And it's like, you're white. Of course, you haven't seen it. You are not in the group that has these experiences. You are excluded from that experience due to the nature of your skin color. So just because you haven't seen it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And I think that a lot of that comes from this definition that we were given of what racism and prejudice is. And to see little sort of inklings of that in this children's book that was written 33 years ago, it was really interesting to me. Yeah, it's really forward thinking. Mm -hmm. Again, this is in the 80s. So I think the attempt is good, but you do see some issues with the sort of dismissal of the, hey, Stony Brook is racist as fuck. Um, Heads (laughs) up, were you aware conversation that they have at the end where Christy is like, oh, I can't imagine that racism will be a problem for any of our clients. That's just not going to be a problem for our people. And it's like, I mean, a very realistic portrayal of what a white kid would have said in that time period. Yes. And frankly, even now to this day. Definitely. Definitely. I remember even myself being like, oh, what do you mean that I was racist? No, we're not Southern. You know what I mean? Like, I think a lot of people grow up with that willful blindness because you don't want to imagine that the people that are around you can be that way. It's a psychological bias that humans have. They have a bias that they believe what they see is what everyone sees. Totally. It's just how brains work. So you have to be taught that it's not true. And you also need to be taught about that bias. Yes. And I think that's why there's so much of a focus and using the terms like lived experience. So that Mm -hmm. like your lived experience, not just what you've heard, but like what you have actually directly experienced. That is your experience and your experience only. That is not any other individual's experience. And so when people are talking about what their lived experience is, if it differs from yours, that doesn't mean that it's not valid because they're living a different life and having different experiences. But that's still a concept that people still have a ways to go to understand that. People are still challenged with this. Yeah. And it is challenging because everybody only sees their own life. You only see the human brain is the human brain and it's a lifelong process of figuring it out and working with it. Yep. Definitely. I'd like to hope that we've come a long way in the 33 years since this was written. Although I think what's happened is a lot of the things that used to be sort of secret and like, so long as you don't let your biases scream out in the overt ways that we've been taught is racist and inappropriate, then that bias doesn't exist. I think now people are starting to learn that that's not true. And so for some people, they see that as justification for then just going ahead and screaming out that bias. And I think other people are seeing that as like, oh, wow, I really need to work on myself. So Interesting to see how it all plays out. We're here to encourage the latter. We definitely encourage the latter. We try to encourage it in ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. None of us are perfect. No. I'm certainly not. 
but wanting, striving to be better every day, not necessarily for perfection, but try to be better. Yeah. And then also just like modeling humility on that front and modeling that like everybody's going to make mistakes. And that is part of the process. Totally. And like you don't need to withdraw from the process because you're struggling and you don't know and you're making mistakes. Having the humility to be like, I don't need to be perfect in this, but I need to keep trying. Right. I need to keep trying to be better every day. God, we could have like a whole podcast on like white privilege for like another four hours. For sure. Well, we have Jesse in the series now. <laughs> so I All have right, a feeling so that topical. This, this topic is not going to go away anytime soon. The other thing is that she does something really skillful, which is she sort of deconstructs the power paradigm by having you empathize with Mallory. Yeah. So they've done really cool psychological experiments where they have someone have a little bit of an experience and then someone tells them a story about someone else having that experience Mm -hmm. and they can empathize a thousand times more. So it's sort of what you were saying before. They really set up Mallory as being an outsider. Yeah. And so it's like for the white 10 year old, 12 year old, 13 year old that's reading this book, all of a sudden they're placed in the outsider role. Yeah. And so they can more greatly empathize with Jesse, who has even more of an outsider status. So I thought that was really skillful. And like you could really miss it because ostensibly any of the sort of plot action of this book can just be, you know, summed up as really simple or something. Mm -hmm. But you can really miss like the very cool, complex things that are going on underneath. Yeah. To your point about how if you get people to put themselves into the shoes, if to, you know, have some sort of an experience and then say, oh, this other person who might be different from you also had this experience. It reminds me of couple of episodes ago and we discussed how if you tell someone what to think mm-hmm. they're much more likely to put up a wall versus if you sort yes. of you know get them to open up their minds to other ideas and come to conclusions on their own it's more likely to stick exactly that can be used in really damaging ways, as in the ways that a lot of right wing propaganda is. You know, we talked about it where it's like, you're smart. You think for yourself, like basically you get mm-hmm. people like Rush Limbaugh, who basically poisoned. And I've, I've seen it personally, like firsthand targeted at isolated people, particularly in rural communities who might be feeling like they are kind of lost in the changes that are happening in society and seeing that that is an opportunity you can get into their heads and you can get them to think what you want them to think if you portray yourself as their friend. And so it's like you're smart. You think for yourself, get them buttered up, get them to listen to you and then bam, hit them with the toxicity and the bullshit that will bring down everybody else's lives around them as well as their own. Yeah. Or you can use that to get people to actually feel empathetic towards other people and to see the commonalities that they have. Right. And so I think you're totally right where it's like, I almost hope that people reading this wouldn't see the skill that Anna Martin is displaying. Yeah, I don't I really don't think especially not kids. They're not going to see that skill at all. I mean, they're not even going to know that that's happening to them. Right. That they're empathizing with Mallory, that their mind is being opened, that their skills and feelings are being tapped. Totally. They wouldn't know it. Of course, they wouldn't know it. So that's to me why it's so skillful. Nobody makes a grand speech about race or anything. Right. I mean, it's unreal. It's so ahead of its time. I really can't think of I I just can't think of another book or another show or movie that was sort of thinking along these lines right. at the time without like beating you over the head. That's what like, I mean. This right. is like the you, message. Exactly. And then you're like, I get it. And yeah. so then you right. end up getting like, oh, OK, I hear you. And you end up kind of like droning it out, being like, OK, I won't ever use racial slurs and I won't ever, yeah. you know, and it's like just because you don't use racial slurs against people doesn't mean that you're not racist. And I think that we have a ton of people who think that right now because of the way that that message was communicated. You know, it really shows the way that 
One of the things Anne M does through this whole series is she's opening your heart. Mm -hmm. All of the experiences is a heart opening, not Mm. a heart closing. It's a mind opening, not a mind closing. So for all the things that we nitpick about and say, holy shit, 80s nonsense, the true flow of the book is so true to that principle of open heart, open mind. Mm -hmm. I think it's got to be why so many kids took this series and got so much out of it. Right. Well, I I was talking to a friend the other day and she's like, I love your podcast and I love the Babysitter's Club book. And it it made me realize there was a place called Connecticut. <laughs> this is actually never, all the Connecticut tourism bureau. Kid. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> sponsored by the state of Connecticut. But, so she's a California kid, right? Yeah. Anyway, so she was just talking about that kind of stuff. And like, you realize this book series was so seminal for so many kids. And yes, it's the little fun things like that. But it's more than that. It's the heart opening. It's the mind opening. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really the reason why we're doing this podcast in the first place, as you know, we discussed in the very first episode, you know, you talked about getting people to have an experience and then hear from other people that have had that same experience. Right. To make that connection, how critical that is in developing empathy in a world that can often feel every day less and less empathetic. But also, I think. It's those poles, right? Yeah, the binaries. This book feels so timely because it is a book that is 100% about power structures and how people wield power when they get it. Well, and the fact that this is the group that we've been following for so long gives you empathy for the ways that even this group of kids that you like and you know that they're good people, the way that they fall into those power structures. They understand that they've been doing that by the end and they sort of try to repair. Right. And then also the vulnerability to group think. Yeah. And group pressure. You see that a lot. And Anne M does a fantastic job of sort of writing these scenes where I think it's people are pressuring Claudia to look something up or say something a particular way. And she does it because, you know, Christie's at her back saying, you got to do it this way. This is the way it goes. Right. So there's there's also that sense of when groups get together. Mm-hmm you know, what happens to the sort of human mind and the human heart, they close, they can close. Right. Because they feel like all of our needs are met within this circle, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's never the case. We're all not to get to kumbaya, but we're all connected. We all live within a system. And when any part of the system fails, that ripple effects to all parts of the system. So a broken system, even if you're like, I'm self-contained within one part of it, I'm okay. You're not because you exist within a system. And so, you know, the very nature of progress should be working towards getting all parts of a system to function equally well, because until that happens, everything within a system is in danger. The system itself Mm -hmm. is in danger. Totally. And so I think, you know, you see... Stony Brook as thinking that it's a closed system, right? Hmm. Stony Brook as being like, wait a minute, these bougie Manhattanites with permed hair have (laughs) moved out of this house. And now we have a black family from New Jersey and that is throwing off the system. Nobody comes. The welcome wagon doesn't come over. And Jesse notices it and she remarks on yeah, it. Yeah, of course and she Mallory does. Mallory is like stunned to see the way that Jesse and her family are being treated. To your point, she identifies the very first page is Mallory talking about who she is. And she starts off by saying she's got glasses. Like the very first page is just like focusing on the glasses that she has to wear. Quote is, if you think it's easy to blend in when you come from an eight kid family, wear glasses and furthermore are the only one, you know, with a head of curly hair, you're wrong. So I don't know if blending in is as much the point as it is like fitting in, Mm -hmm. you know, so she feels like she doesn't really fit. Like she talks a lot about how she doesn't have a best friend. She wonders what that must be like. You know, she's got a lot of responsibility that's put on her plate. It seems like, you know, she's never been allowed to really truly be a kid, given that her mom had eight kids under the age of six at one point. 
And so, you know, she feels isolated and she's trying to gain entrance into a group with the Babysitter's Club, much in the same way that Jesse is like, OK, now I'm in this town. I come from a town in New Jersey that isn't real. I looked it up, but she comes from a predominantly black community where her entire neighborhood was black and she had all of her family members like on the same street. So she comes from a very tight knit system where she perhaps does, quote unquote, blend in in a way that Mallory seems to be looking for. And she knows that she definitely does not here in Stony Brook. And Stony Brook just makes that isolation feel much more stark for her. So, you know, it starts off the book by Mallory framing how she feels out of place. And then she and Jesse, when she goes over to Jesse's house for the first time and goes in her room, you know, this is like page 38 and 39. They start talking about like, oh, wow, looks like you like horse stories. And Jesse's like, I like any story. So they're bonding over their love of books. And then they're bonding over how they both wear glasses and how neither of their moms will let them get pierced ears and their oldest kids in their family. Like they're focusing on the ways that they're the same and they find comfort in that in a way that like, I don't think it's presented as either of them are looking for a mere image. They're just looking for a way not to go through this world alone to feel like they have someone that they can bond with somebody that they can feel not as isolated as they are. And that's the thing that brings them together. And it's the thing that ultimately gets them what they want. Yes. Power to the people. Hell yeah. So, I mean, that's what I had for, you know, what they're fighting is they're fighting these power structures that are hostile. Yeah, the same. And exclusionary. And the tool that they're using is solidarity. Right. Like they basically give two middle fingers up to that exclusionary system. They don't take the shit. They're like, here's what I want. What we want is we love babysitting. We want to babysit. And if the babysitters club won't let us in, fuck them. We'll start our own club. And they use that to get leverage. I mean, they basically unionize. (laughs) I know. And, And they also I had the exact same thing. And I think they also use empathy. Mm-hmm. So they use solidarity and they use empathy. So they're empathizing with each other. They're crossing any divides that they might have between each other with empathy. And then they're also actually, they have a fair amount of empathy for the babysitter's club, even. You know, even after they're treated miserably, you know, they don't go to war with them. They really try to kind of understand, or Mallory tries to understand where they're coming from. And then in the end, you know, everybody can kind of come together. So it's both the solidarity and the fighting of the power structure and seeing the human beings within the power structure so that there can be some sort of reintegration of a whole. And I thought that was really cool because I thought it might be that they were going to spin off into another book series or something Mm -hmm. and they were going to be at war with the Babysitter's (laughs) Club. So I was like, fuck yeah, I can get behind that. But anyway, but I thought it was kind of cool how they came. They all came together in the end and the Babysitter's Club realized that they were being douchebags and fixed their shit. And I think to your point about how Mallory and Jesse, the way that they're like, we're going to make sure that we work this out together you know, sort of like bridging that divide to get to the point about hierarchies and power structure when Mallory is like, OK, who should do what? Like, what officer should we be? And Jesse is just like, let's not have officers. Yeah, let's be that equal. Was so cool. Which I really liked. That was so cool. I liked that line. And I'll say, you know, there is, is certainly something to be said for hierarchies in terms of like or at least defined roles. Not so much hierarchy. Oh, my God. It's so hard to have a hierarchy less organization. Right. I've worked in them. Yeah, really I have worked in hard. companies that have attempted it and it is not <laughs> that's great. really fucking hard. At least the thing that's important, though, is to have a definition of roles and to have like clear ways of communicating and to have empathy be at the heart of it. So it's like, yes, you might be, yeah. quote unquote, higher in the hierarchy, but that doesn't mean that you're better. It just means that like you might have more responsibility. Moving, quote unquote, up the ladder 
in and of itself, it doesn't mean that like you are better than or more important than anyone. It just means that your job is different. I'm so glad you're saying that because I it was another thing I saw, which was if a group is having success, all of a sudden they believe that they are extremely high status and they deserve to be there Mm -hmm. and other people don't deserve to be there. So you kind of saw that thought process working out in this book. Right. Because they're so busy. So they're like, we're so busy. We must be like, we're the shit. Yeah. So they've forgotten that they don't know how to tie a tourniquet. They don't know how to draw the human digestive system, (laughs) but they're amazing. Why the fuck should they have to? But this kid better know how to do it. Right. That's a great example of how groups work and how people's psychology changes the higher they go up in an organizational chain. It was really cool. You set standards for others, even those that are at lower positions in the hierarchy that you're in. You set higher standards for them than you set for yourself. Exactly. And that exactly. does come up at the end where that is acknowledged. And I want to say, is it Dawn? Is Dawn the one? <laughs> that I think it may have been Dawn. What they're doing. <laughs> yep, it is. Excellent. Yes, Yo, it's Dawn. Dawn. So Dawn says, I don't think we should expect more from anyone else than we do from ourselves. Snap. There's Dawn, the one who I maintain has the highest emotional intelligence of anyone else in the babysitters club. Um, Went along with it. But like, yeah, in the end, she's the one that's like, "Eh, maybe this wasn't cool. And we see like what happens when you hold people to those standards that they can't possibly meet when Mallory, the way that she's being scrutinized. You know, when she's on her sort of test run with Claudia, who was looking over her shoulder and she's like, every move I make is being monitored. I mean, it just immediately made me think of like what it must be like to be a black person who is pulled over or a black person who is shopping in a department store, you know, where it's like because you know that you're being looked at at all times, you get kind of like jumpy and looking over your shoulder like, OK, who's looking at me now? And that act of being like, OK, I know I'm being monitored. People will use that as justification for the monitoring. Mm-hmm. Like it was the same way with Mallory. Every little thing she did, Claudia is like there taking notes and correcting and pointing out every little bitty thing, not even that she did wrong, but that she did differently from what Claudia herself would do. And that in and of itself is wrong. And so it was really reflective of the way that I think we see prejudice and implicit and frankly, explicit bias play out in society today. So this book is deep. It's a good one. It's so deep. What did you have for 80s moments? For 80s moments, it's funny. There wasn't a whole lot of other. Oh, my God. For some reason, I found a million. Did you? (laughs) Yeah, I have one. So can I give you my one and then you can go to town? Okay, so my most 80s moment was the name that Mallory and Jesse picked for their club, which is Kids Incorporated, Incorporated, which was a show on the Disney Channel. This was a show that I always wanted to watch, but we didn't subscribe to the Disney Channel, so I was never able to watch it. But it took me right back full circle to who was in Kids Incorporated? Fergie. (laughs) <laughs> Fergalicious started well, out with Kids okay, Incorporated. So I did watch Kids Incorporated and I love Fergie and I've never made that connection that I probably watched. Her. Yes. Stacy Ferguson. So she was Stacy in Kids Incorporated. And so I did a little research. I was like, wait, Kids Incorporated was definitely a thing by 1988. And it was. I did, I did the same. Yeah, it was. But it said she was the youngest cast member when the show started in 1984. And then by the time she left, like six years later, she was the oldest cast member. So she is the oh, shit. Fergie is the OG of Kids Incorporated. <laughs> With Kids Incorporated, K-I-D-S. So I knew the theme song, like the Kids Incorporated theme song will come into my head just randomly. Like every few months. It's like I'm washing the dishes. (laughs) The Kids Incorporated theme song pops into my head. It was like some psychologist banged this out in a lab. Like, how do we create a song that is so painful and yet will never leave your psyche until the day that you die? They mastered that assignment. So well done, (laughs) psychologist. That was my 80s moment. What were some of your favorite ones since you had so many? 
Well, I can't remember what mom it was, but the quote was something like, mom says she has better things to do than pack eight lunches five times a week. Yeah. And I was like, you go, 80s mama. So again, here was the 80s where like it was okay for moms to have things they wouldn't do for their children. Oh, yeah. Well, this was obviously before the invention of the Lunchable. Sure. The Lunchable solved that problem. (laughs) So that was one. And then um, I think it surprisingly was Claudia in a babysitting assignment who said, we don't ask the kids what they want to eat. We tell them what they're eating. And I was like, that's also very 80s. You know, I don't know about you, but my parents were not like, what do you feel like for dinner? It was like, we're having pot roast deal. Right. Deal. So that felt very 80s. And I think that's probably changed for a lot of people. And then Jinx. People are doing Jinxes all over the place in this book. The Pinky Jinx. Jinx, The Pinky Jinx, Mm -hmm. which I remember. Um, And then I had Kids Incorporated. Yeah. Now I have to watch. I'm sure Kids Incorporated is on YouTube. And so now I'm going to like for the first time in my life. I just might actually <laughs> finally watch dream. Kids Incorporated. Now you have pit bulls. You don't have bunnies. You've got pit bulls. <laughs> and you're going to be able to watch Kids Incorporated. You see what I mean, grown up life is if like. If you would have told eight-year-old me <laughs> that one day I could watch all the Kids Incorporated I want with a dog on either side of me while eating candy for breakfast if I wanted to. Holy shit. Are you like, this is the best part of being an adult. You hear that, kids? It gets better. It gets better. <laughs> it does. There's a lot of bullshit that comes to aging, but there's also candy for breakfast. Yeah, your body falls apart, but hey. Yeah, but then you, you get can to watch whatever you want. Exa- yeah, you can exacerbate the process by eating candy for breakfast <laughs> if you choose to. <laughs> Speaking of candy for breakfast, I love that Mallory thought that a club was just people like standing around making fudge. I want a fudge club. <laughs> Why is Fudge Let's Club a thing? We're grownups. I love it. Hey, we started this podcast. <laughs> we can start a fucking Fudge Club. Fudge Club. Yeah. <laughs> fudge Club. <laughs> I'm sure I could whip together a song like I whipped together the theme song of this podcast. No problem. I kind of hear it like, remember the dog sh- like from SNL with Will Ferrell and Molly Shannon when they had dog show and it was like, <laughs> dog show. I'm hearing it like, <laughs> Fudge Club. Fudge show. <laughs> oh, I, I changed it to fudge show. I messed it up. <laughs> fudge club makes fudge show. It's great. <laughs> so, yeah. And then I guess there was also, I do have to point out, there were a couple of canonical moments in here where I was like, hold on a second. Threw me for a loop. So, first of all, I felt vindicated in that Mallory said Claudia has a pair of earrings that is a dog and a bone. <laughs> I saw that and thought of you. I was like, I knew it. So Stacy also had it. Maybe Claudia inherited Stacy's. Who knows? But growing up, I was like, Claudia has the dog and bone earring. And so she does. Uh, I saw that myself and felt very vindicated for you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Clearly, you saw how important that was to me. But then also, Mallory is a redhead. I don't care what this book says. This book says she has dark brown hair, and I have never seen a picture of Mallory with dark brown hair. Hmm. Mallory is always represented as having red hair, so I choose to believe that she has red hair. I'm going to ignore what Anna Martin says. Beautiful. Also, the Perkins baby was born and was not named Randy. (laughs) (laughs) I feel slighted. I feel betrayed. We were promised a Randy either way. Either way. Either way, that baby was going to be Randy Perkins. And instead, we're stuck with Laura Beth. But, you know. Horse shit. Yeah. So now that we have established that the Babysitter's Club is in the process of changing, you know, we don't get a confirmation at the end that Mallory and Jesse make it into the Babysitter's Club. But, you know, it's teased pretty heavily that they do. And now that we've got a shift in the Babysitter's Club dynamics, They're going to branch off and go on their first super special, even though right now we're talking about book 14, Hello, Mallory. The next episode will not be focused on book 15, because in between book 14 and book 15, we had super special number one, babysitters on board. (laughs) Shut your mouth. 
babysitters. Is that where Baby on Board came from? <laughs> yes. Anna Martin patented Baby on Board. Is she like a billionaire because she patented Baby on Board? I hope so. Which, by the way, I saw the best version of that the other day. It said former Baby on Board. <laughs> It's just like a 50-year-old man. Yeah, but it's so great because it's like, why is my life any less valuable than a baby? I was a baby once I died I was planning on intentionally ramming into your vehicle, but I saw that you have a small child in it, so I will take my aggression out on someone else. Yeah. No, that's... A former baby. Former baby. Are we, and the we're all like, it was like a picture of a guy like this waving, <laughs> just like a stupid, like, stick figure waving. I died. You know, when you think about it, we're all former babies. We're all former we're babies all former on board. Babies. When I see babies, you know, babies struggle a lot. They just like can't <laughs> regulate their emotions. They they just struggle to regulate. They haven't learned how to. Yes, so there's fucking all over the place, you know. And when I see babies, I think that is still going on in every one of our minds. Yeah. Like that is the human mind sort of in its essence. And then we're all just trying to manage it. I don't know. It gives me a lot of empathy for people. Yeah. We're all still trying to master the concept of object permanence. When we <laughs> play peekaboo, are you coming back? I hope so. I hope so. We'll find out. Keep you on your toes. <laughs> yeah, so we'll find out uh, if there are babies on board along with the babysitters on board in the next episode, which I'm excited sure, about. Sure, I mean, given how this series goes, like the whole town could send their children with them onto the cruise. Oh, you're going on a cruise ship? Why don't you take 45 kids? Right. None of them can swim. Yeah, these 13-year-olds will take care of them the whole time. Just go get shit-faced on the Lido deck. Here's $4. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Looking forward to discussing that with you in our next episode, KK. Me too. But until then, just keep sitting. Welcome to the. (laughs) Keep that for sure.